Welcome to the Break the Chains, Find Your Flame podcast. My name is Steve Wolpolinik. I'm a licensed mental health counselor and one of the founders of the Promethean Project. Our guests are people who have broke the chains of their limitations and found the strength of their potential. We offer their stories as inspiration and as guidance to help others navigate their quest to find their flame. Welcome back, listeners. As always, your host, Steve Opolinik, bringing you the Break the Chains, Find Your Flame podcast. Today's episode is episode 34, and it features our first returning guest. Our guest, again, is Rolando Garcia III. Originally, when we had his first podcast, we did not get to talk about Bruce Lee and Jeet Kune Do, and we had agreed to have him back on later in the year so that we could do that. So over the course of time, before he was able to come back onto the podcast, significant things happened in our society that led to the murder of George Floyd and the protesting and demonstrating against police brutality. So as we met for the podcast to talk about Bruce Lee and his martial arts forms, the podcast started to focus on racism. And we get into the different intricacies of racism that Bruce Lee had to endure in the States and also in mainland China and in the martial arts world. And we talk specifically about Jeet Kune Do, the philosophy and the martial art, how it applies to living your life, making decisions, fighting for equity, and how we can use the tenets and principles of the, of the philosophy to use our strengths to hold others up, support others, and advocate for others. Originally, the podcast was going to be strictly about martial arts and philosophy, but it directly correlates with our society at this time, and it's a really, really amazing to take the concepts of martial arts and have real-life practical uses in everyday uh, face-to-face adversities and interactions. So, I really can't hype this up enough. I really enjoy talking to Rolando again and really spending some time getting deeper into philosophy, martial arts, and their applications to societal needs and societal means. So I hope you enjoy. In a world where humanity's potential is imprisoned and locked away, our only hope is to break the chains and find our flame. Uh, how are you? Things are good. Yeah. Uh, it's it's uh, as you can see, I'm more I'm more vocal on social media right. on current events. Uh, but other than that, uh, doing well. Good to hear. How's, how's it out there in New York? It's, um, it's actually good in the sense that there are two things to it. Uh, because I'm in conversation with my team, my Orange Theory team, and a lot of them are in those hot spots. Right. And it's from what I'm hearing, 95% peaceful, very little looting. And that's one thing I have not put out there in social media because uh, there's another side out there that likes to put out 
you know, it's, it's World War Z and the whole place is blowing up. I can't believe right. they're not letting me in the National Guard. No, if we needed the National Guard, I think New Yorkers will be the first one to say it. We will yeah. be the first one. I mean, the way you guys handled the pandemic was, which is still going on, obviously, right? But like the way you guys had everything I saw coming out of there that you guys were on point as much as can be expected, right? And, and yeah. celebrating and and working with everyone to try to make it happen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And here, um, especially in the city, in Manhattan, from, I have all, I'm in touch with not just my Orange Theory team, but also my um, New York fitness colleagues. All I'm hearing is I went to this peaceful protest. I have um, colleagues who are actually tra- uh, planning to train kettlebells and kickboxing in the park. You know, it, right. it's, it's just another day um, in Manhattan. Gotcha. Yeah. How are things with you? Uh, pretty good. You know, uh, there's been some, we're in Western Mass, so it's not as populated, but there's been some protests out here that have been really peaceful and, and supportive. Right. And, um, you know, we just had one of our local state senators went to one of the protests and, and marched to the center of Springfield, which is one of our bigger cities out here and that went pretty well and you know it was nice to to see people getting out there and and going to the cause and you know being vocal about it it is it is it's a very nice thing yeah so welcome back man (laughs) i know it was only a couple weeks ago we had you on and you know depending on the schedule of of what i already have going on through throughout the already recorded podcast i don't know when this is going to air but okay. I think regardless of when it airs, it's going to be um, just as palpable and, and powerful as if it was to air next. Um, yeah. Because I think really what we're talking about, and we'll get into it, like originally we were talking about Jeet Kune Do and, and kind of having a whole episode on that. And then in talking with you, we planned some, you know, to still do that, but kind of relate to the bigger world and what that looks like and, and you know, Bruce Lee's legacy and what he was really fighting for. Yeah. Intended, right? <laughs> yeah, he was he was when I think back to it as somebody who's studied him for many years, not only his art but his life, but somebody who has spoken to um several of his students and I have my my own uh instructors, it was it was a daily, I mean literally daily struggle for him because uh it's he, he had to deal with his own oppression because he was being challenged to fight all the time. Right. This was a daily occurrence for him because he was so outspoken and he was so outspoken about inclusivity and this became a problem and he lived it. And I think this, so like what I was saying before about whenever this comes out, I think it doesn't matter in, in the respect of it because I think what we're seeing now is not just a here and now two-week thing this is a long long it's the long game it's it's ongoing it's keeping the pressure on what's going on and I think talking about this whether it comes out in a month or a month and a half or whatever it's going to still be relevant and really important for people to hear so I'm really happy to have you on again today to talk about this and, and you know talk about martial arts and the aspects of inclusivity and and the challenges of racism in, in many different forms and and the challenges that Bruce Lee kind of fought against. And, you know, I think there's this, this interesting concept with martial arts of, of challenges 
Right. Yeah. Like, oh, you know, you you practice this style. I'm going to I'm going to find you on the street and we're just going to throw down, <laughs> you know, like right, old right. Um, philosophy from from the old countries and, and everything of that nature. And it's interesting to see how that followed Bruce throughout his his whole kind of career, even over into the States when, you know, when things kind of got maybe not in like an actual fighting arena for him, but but in day to day life, like you were talking about. Yeah, it it was his day to day. I can't wait to share that piece of it because I only found out about that 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 it was a daily thing for him uh, about maybe in uh, two thousand eight, and it was from Danny Nasanto. He said, "No, guys, the Wong Jack Man one fight thing. It wasn't one fight, oh, and yeah. they were a- they were after him specifically because they did not want him teaching outside of the Chinese race." Right. And this presented a problem for him on the basis of principle. And that that's an interesting concept too. I think I saw when, when you posted that we were going to talk about that, I, I think I saw a couple of people talk about, you know, like that divide of, well, people think I'm not this or this, and I'm somewhere in, in between because of where I fall on my parentage. And, you know, if my mom's white and my dad is black or if my dad's, Filipino and my mom's white like where do we where do we kind of fit in and I think it's yeah. interesting to see Bruce's story in the sense that he didn't really fit in, in into our concept in America when he came over and, and started getting well known and recognized and then that aspect of the Chinese culture uh, and the specifically martial arts he didn't really fit in there either so he was straddling yeah and it, it actually it actually came down to race it came down to race, not just, he experienced, he was unique in that, and it's a, it's a strong point to make because he experienced racism, not just in the United States, but in his own country with his own people. In fact, that was the most severe end. So what he experienced was not, and, and he came to the conclusion that racism as a culturally sanctioned belief uh, was something that was arbitrarily set. In other words, you don't even have to have a different skin tone. You don't even have to look different. Right. They just have to assign you as different. And regardless of your intention, your work ethic, your character, or your skill, you're out. And he fought it. <laughs> so let's let's jump into uh, yeah. your, your journey with Jeet Kune Do and, and we're, we'll kind of like spin around and come in and out of that, that conversation. Yeah. So can you remind everyone, um, I know we talked about it last podcast we did, but can you remind your background specifically in, in this martial arts form? Uh, yes, I am currently, I am a full instructor in Jeet Kune Do and Filipino martial arts under uh, Armando Basulto. And uh, when I was certified under him, he was the East Coast Regional Director of Jeet Kune Do for Paul Vunak. And Paul Vunak, very famous for um, developing the hand-to-hand SEAL combatives manual between 1988 and 1992. And Paul Vunak is a direct student of um, Guru Dan Inosanto. And uh, so that's my background. I was first exposed to Bruce Lee because it's very hard to separate uh, the man from his art. I was was exposed to Bruce Lee when I was about four years old. And it was one of my early memories because I, I was in a theater. I remember this. Everything was dark. I was seeing people fight, but there was one thing that stood out to me was when he, when he got to that nunchuck scene and he started moving around with the nunchucks and everybody knows that he was just so fast. 
And I remember people clapping. And it's rare, even nowadays, to hear people clap, but people were just clapping. And I thought, wow, they were clapping for this. And I remember even at that age, asking my dad, dad, what was that? Oh, that's a nunchaku. That's a stick, chain. And then he said, I'll, I'll show you when we get home because I have one. Oh my God, that's so great. <laughs> I can't wait. And he handed it to me and they felt like, you know, 50 pounds of wooden chain. I thought, how is it possible that this man could defy the laws of physics? Because to me, if I tried to swing this, it, might, it, it weighed and moved like a crowbar in my, in my mind. So right. Bruce Lee was then um, introduced to me. Then my dad, two years later, introduced me to karate. He had a background in uh, judo. He was a, a brown belt in judo and com uh, competitor in judo. And, uh, and then about a good six, seven years after that, I was exposed to Filipino martial arts. And those were the days, and this is in the 80s, where there was black belt theater, five deadly den venoms, there were butterfly swords and all types of exotic weapons. I remember talking to my dad and I said, dad, I want a three section staff. And uh, this is how he started putting me towards Jeet Kune Do. And he said, what are you gonna use a three section staff for? Well, I think it's really cool. He said, so three people invite, invade the house, you're gonna use a three section staff. <laughs> you're on the street, how are you gonna use your three sections? Are you gonna carry it around with you? Right. So he introduced me to the practicality of it and I'll never forget how he broke it down. He said, you're nine years old right now. You are, you have a, you're the captain of your Taekwondo team. You're gonna learn kicking first. In another few years, you're gonna learn boxing. So you can put your hands and feet together. And then in another few years, you're going to learn Wing Chun. And then you're going to start to get into Judo. And then later on, you're going to get into a little more weaponry and some ballistic firearms. So he created like this life plan for me, an entire curriculum. But the, the, the one, the first lesson was practicality. Number two, you're looking at multiple layers of learning here. Eventually, about a good... I luckily about a good 16 years later, I'm very picky with my instructors. I found my instructor, Armando Basulto, and he, he embodied so much of not only the curriculums I was looking for, the overarching philosophy of inclusiveness that Jeet Kune Do is known for. He taught Filipino martial arts, Safat, Zavat, French Savat, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, boxing and Wing Chun. But ultimately what led me to him was that he was, uh, it was his character. He has high moral standing. And so after about a good three to four years of training with, no, 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 it was no five years of um, training with him, competing under him. He certified me in as a full instructor in Jeet Kune Do and, um, and in Filipino martial arts. And in that time, during that time, as a, as a boy who was growing up in the Philippines and growing up in the United States, I got into all types of fights. Right. I, I got, and I had to deal with my own uh, experience with racism. And that's one of the things that kind of um, bound me to Bruce Lee and his story. And I wanted to see how he dealt with it. And uh, because I was having to deal with it myself, even at a very young age. Yeah, that connection. I think when you look at martial arts in general, there is that, that concept that kind of, I feel like follows it around um of wanting to i don't for me it's it's like oh i want to pick up some swords <laughs> you know, like seven years old and it's like oh yeah you want these cool 
you want to learn that stuff, but it's, it's a harder. And so I love that. Like your, your dad had this plan and was like, Hey, this is what we're going to start. We're going to start very, very basic and, and kind of incorporate these things and, and keep going. And, and that's kind of the, the concept of Jeet Kune Do, right. Is, is like be, be water. Right. So kind of right. mold to what situation you're in. Um, yeah. And it's very philosophy based, like philosophical in, in nature. I, I feel like it, it, a lot of martial arts, martial arts are, but when I think about Jeet Kune Do, it's, it's, it is a philosophy and a martial art that are pretty much the same kind of concept. Right. Um, yes. Even if you look in some of Bruce's writing, he's got that book, I think it's called the Tao of Jeet Kune Do. Is that, is that correct? Tao of Jeet Kune Do. And that is it. You know, I remember picking it up when I was younger. It's like, oh, I want to read Bruce's philosophy, and like much younger. And I was like, oh, where, where's all the fighting? <laughs> you know. <Yeah. laughs> and then it, and then as I got older, I'm like, oh, I can't believe I that was my reaction. But that's very much a young man's reaction, a young kid's reaction. It's like, oh, I, like this guy's well known. He's in the movies. He's a martial artist. But that always stuck out. Stuck out for me was. No, no, no. This is this is more. This is life. It's not just this art specifically. It's life for Bruce. You know, this is this is his philosophy on on moving through life. So. And his, his and his philosophy was very well researched. He was known when he was a philosophy major. And number two, he had two thousand books. Yeah. And a lot of the notes that you saw and I saw in Dao Ji Kundo were, um, I think, some of them were from Napoleon Hill. Uh, a good portion of them, I believe, were Confucianism and Taoism. But a lot were from J.D. Krishnamurti. And it, it resonates with, with, uh, with us because they were addressing very human dilemmas that, you know, whether it was 50 years ago or thousands of years ago, we all have to deal with it. And that's what resonates. That's what makes Jeet Kune Do resonate. It resonated for him and it resonates for us now because it, those philosophies address very human dilemmas around survivalism and ultimately how do you uh, exist and ultimately progress in this short period of time that we have here called life? Right. That's great. So I guess it would be helpful if we get some kind of understanding of, we, we talked about some philosophy and in, in the concept of water, but some, some kind of uh, hard-based understanding of what the art is uh, as you've learned it and yeah. what the applications look like. And then we can dive more into some of the philosophical tendencies to it. So um, I'm going to speak as the, um, the Jeet Kune Do instructor here. Okay? okay. So there are several interesting tenets that um, Bruce Lee had to cut through. And the background of which is that martial art, if you wanted to learn how to fight at the time, this was around the 50s and 60s, you had to subscribe not only to a style, but the nationalistic roots of that style. So if everyone bowed, you had to bow. If everyone had to do a horse stance, you had to do a horse stance. Meanwhile, this guy was probably waiting for like two or three gang members outside the door and he had to deal with, learn how to deal with it. So he, his art was a no BS art. He had to cut to it. One of the main strategies and, and uh, fundamental thoughts in, um, in Jeet Kune Do is that the longest weapon has to be closest to the nearest target. Longest weapon, nearest target. This, this got him into trouble at the time because if you think about what was prevalent at the time as striking arts uh, were the Japanese martial arts, 
they chambered their power hand to the hip right. because that rotational force was what was going to deliver the power. And Bruce Lee famously said, no, you, it's, it's the longest weapon, meaning your fist, right? Strong side forward. So instead of cocking it behind you, he put it in front of you. But it was argued that you don't have any power. And he said, no, I do have power. And anybody can look that up on YouTube with this one inch. <laughs> he, he definitely has power. <laughs> he can, it's, it's, um, it's because when you have the longest weapon nearest target, that's the first philosophy, uh, the first um, thought, fundamental thought. The second fundamental thought is that you occupy center line. The center line of the body, and you find this even in um, Edwin Hazlitt's seminal boxing book called Unboxing, and the center line is defined, it's almost like your spine. So it's a, it's a line, an imaginary line that bisects your entire body. So if you proceed to quote unquote occupy this line, so if I take my strong side forward and then I launch it in the middle, uh, you will be far more effective. Why is this? Uh, number one, when you have one tool going down the center line, his right side and his left side are essentially split. You have something going right down the middle, or as in boxing, they call it right down the pipe. So what you've done is uh, implemented a divide and conquer strategy on the person's anatomy. So if you're punching down the middle, you're elbowing down the middle, you're kicking, you're kneeing down the middle, it's not just a question of it being more forceful. It's the fact that you have applied a divide and conquer strategy on the human anatomy. So that's, num so, uh, so that's number two. And then number three, it's called the five ways of attack. And the five ways of attack, so not a collection of techniques, is the five ways of attack. Meaning that whether you're attacking with a kick, you're attacking with your hands or elbows or with a weapon, it really comes down to five kinds of attack. There's a direct attack, right? So there's just one punch. So that's attack number one. ABC, which is attack by combination, right? So you have an attack by combination. So that you have one punch, two punch, three kick, four knee, right? And then you have hand immobilization attack. So that's number three. So if I'm going to attack you, I'm gonna trap your hands first, then go ahead and uh, hit you, right? Then there's number four, attack by draw, meaning I'm going to stick my chin out and then you go for it. And then as you go for it, I hit you, right? Or I give you my stomach, you go for it, I counter you. So that's, uh, that's attack by draw. The last one is progressive indirect attack. And progressive indirect attack means I'm going to hit you high, I'm going to hit you low, I'm going to hit you in the middle. And based off of your reaction, that compound effect, is going to make you lose timing. It's going to make you lose structure. Ergo, I can land the actual attack. Right. So those those are the three fundamentals. Uh, you uh, it's longest weapon nearest target. Come down. Uh, so you're and then you attack the center line. Occupy center line. And then the five ways of attack. That's all. <laughs> I just there's so many questions that are are popping up. Go it, for it. And it's really you, you know uh, well I'll start without a question and then we'll we'll circle back around. Um, so it's funny because when I, like centerline is something I've learned from my brother and his, his own aspect of martial arts and, and exercise and even paying attention to how you move and how you move your neck and how you protect your neck and, and everything of that nature. And I find when I talk about concepts, specifically when I'm counseling about mindfulness, 
it's always about being present. And for me, that's always center line base. So kids, yeah. it's funny when I talk to kids, sometimes I'll be talking about distractions and I'll have my hand on, on center line a lot. And then when I talk about distractions, it, it goes out over here. And then mm. I always talk about bringing it back to, to the present. And I'm always, I'm always aligning that because that, it's just internalized in, in that concept about being here, being present, your intention, right? Like that's kind of one of the most important things that I've seen um, even that's to strong. talk about these concepts, you know? And yeah. it's funny because kids are always like, what, what are you doing? <laughs> like, oh, is, is, is my hand here? They're like, yeah, you're just kind of holding it like you're a monk or, or, or something like that. And for me, it, it's this embodiment of even in, in the mental game or even in the, the thought world or cognition world or whatever you want to call it, the physical aspect is, is not that far away. Right. And so when, Never far when away. you talk of, right. um, I mean, they're ingrained so much that like we forget that so much in, in thinking, but even that response physically for me is just so ingrained that I don't think I could talk about mindfulness and, and have my hand out here and, and kind of pointing around. I, I think it always is here. Um, right. And it feels right, you know, so occupying that, that center line, defending that center line, messing, you, you know, throwing off the person from their center line, it, it makes a lot of sense in, in that concept, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, I'm not, t- I'm not saying anything new, like thousands of people know this, but for me, it's, it's just, it's weird to see that, that connection in what I do, which is very uh, emotional uh, mental game, but it, it makes, it makes so much sense. That's superb. Yeah. And then, you know, the longest uh, weapon to the, the shortest, uh, what was it? The, the closest target. Closest target also makes a lot of sense too, right? It's it's when you're thinking about it from the mental aspect, you're not you're not necessarily gonna say, "Hey, I'm way back here. Let me go for this far-reaching thing." Like, no, this yeah. thing's here. Let me let me take that with, yeah. with my strength, right? Like, you don't want to. Oh, my hands up here, so let me kind of use my weak side to to take out this big thing. You you want to use your strengths with the the thing closest that you can affect yeah yeah it's it's a you end up it's a that type of thought process uh when you're in a combative situation whether it's a it's a a a physical type of exchange or even if it is a simple dialogue you can apply uh the same concepts in that it gives you a method of prioritizing. What am I going after first? In Wing Chun, there is a, a trap, basically a trap, and it's called chasing hands. So here you are, you're, you're with the guy and you're implementing hand immobil- immobilization technique where you're trying to immobilize the hand. So now what you're doing is you're chasing the guy's hands, forgetting that, well, your job is actually to hit the guy. <laughs> so it, it don't don't just chase his hands you have to be able to prioritize mm-hmm. what uh what your method of attack is and john little who used to be an author for the bruce lee foundation uh brought up something interesting about bruce lee's life because prevalent at the time which you're looking at the 1960s if you were considered a martial artist a serious martial artist you had to be able to break several bricks and boards you had to have a black belt. You had to be able to, in Chinese styles, be able to take a spear to the throat 
and just kind of, oh, you, you, you kind of bear down and then you can bend the spear. And you were not considered a serious martial artist if you didn't have any of this street cred. But Bruce Lee was a street fighter in Hong Kong and he knew none of those things had any direct application. So instead of chasing hands, so to speak, he just went right down to the center line. I don't need to break 10 bricks. I don't need to sidekick 10 uh, blocks of ice. Imagine what would have happened if Bruce Lee had somehow not prioritized, not followed his own principles. And he, he spent all of his time and years breaking boards, becoming a board breaking master, right? It sounds ludicrous to us now. Right, yeah. Post UFC, post MMA. But this was so prevalent that even up to the 80s, you had board breaking champions where they would light the whole cinder blocks on fire and then you break it with a forearm break. And the guy was covered in some sort of like um, red, white, and blue gi kimono. This was a real thing. If Bruce Lee had not prioritized, had not uh, gone after the most important target, not gone after the center line, the heart of what martial art really is, not only would there be no Jeet Kune Do, there'd be no Bruce Lee. Right. We wouldn't be talking about him right now. Right. He'd just be another person breaking boards. Yeah. And that statement, it reminds me, uh, do you watch martial arts movies? Are you? Of course. Actress? That reminds me of that scene in Bloodsport with Jean-Claude Van Damme, where they're at the uh, Kumate, I think it's yeah, called. Yeah, the Kumate, yeah. yeah. And they have to break bricks to, to mm. enter. And they pick a brick and he, he, he like breaks the lowest one without breaking any of the other bricks. And yeah. then his friend, who's like a street brawler, American guy, just picks a brick up and slams it against his head. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it, 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 it was cool back then because you're like, oh, man, Van Damme can do that. And then the other guy's tough enough to break it. But it, it almost kind of looking at it now, it, it screams about the absurdity of, of some of that concept. Yeah, it's cool looking. Uh, don't get me wrong. That that might be something i go home to practice and put a spear tip to, to, to my just to play around with it but but it really doesn't translate right and i think that's the, that's kind of like bruce was all about getting down to the, the nitty-gritty of like what works even if it seems like because you're right he was a brawler he had to take care of himself so you're going to take that shot to the groin on someone if you're brawling someone you, you know like it's not like oh i I'll stay away from that man, but you're trying to kill me. So I, yeah, I, just yeah. want, I won't poke your eye out. I won't do that. And so maybe in um, practice, you don't do the groin shots, but you prepare to do those kind of things. He had to be deadly efficient because mind you, uh, in the 1960s in the United States, the average height of an American was 5'9", 160, 165. Mm -hmm. And he was 5'7", 135 soaking wet. So if he was going to be effective in personal combat and defending himself, he did not have time for ornamentation. He did not have time to break the bricks. He did not have time to put the spear to his throat. None of the fluff. He had right. to get right to the heart of it. In um, his Tao of Jeet Kune Do, there is a movement in there called the jab and go. Jab and go. What's the jab and go? Jab, double leg takedown. Jab, double leg takedown. So your right hand shoots out. And the guy ends up defending high. And as he defends high, his legs are exposed. He goes for a tackle or double leg takedown. This was during a time when the concept of tackling your opponent was anathema. You are right. not a martial artist. All right. You had to use your crane beak. You had to use your dim mock. 
you had to use your fancy spinning kick, right? If you were considered a martial artist, because if you just did a double leg, you were a brawler. Right. Now you see it everywhere in MMA. Everyone is doing the jab and go. Everyone is yeah. doing um, jab, double leg. One of the best I ever saw was Sean Shirk. When he jabbed, a half second later, you were already going down. Right. Uh, it's so prevalent now. So he was so ahead of his time, but because he prioritized what was ultimately going to become effective for him. Right. I, I'm thinking back to a conversation me and my brother had about martial arts years ago. Um, I'll, I'll let you in on one part of it because then it got like not appropriate to, to talk about <laughs> about different ways to to do that distraction. But um, he was talking about some of the old masters that his his teacher learned from how when when they had those confrontations, a lot of times back in, in China or, or wherever they are, they were deadly. They, they were people would die or people would get seriously hurt and taken out of the game. So you, you used anything you could to, to kind of move forward. And he was saying one of, I can't remember who it was, but one of the, one of the people in the lineage used to like spit at the, at the person when, right when it started. And then all of a sudden you would, you know, if you got spit at, you'd react like to protect it and not, and then you just take them down and, and, and take care of them. Right. But that's real life. That's real life. You know? Yeah, that's, that's so, so much for, you know, uh, managing your chi, you know, or mm -hmm. having the right uniform or learning tiger form number 10, you know, can you imagine how many times, how many times did that guy had to practice his spit? No, he didn't have to practice his spit. Right. Uh, in other words, the natural reaction, the, the, the reaction that falls within the natural laws of combative principles. That's what Bruce Lee was interested in. A mm -hmm. reporter back in the seventies asked him, Hey, uh, Bruce, can you tell me what Jeet Kune Do, and before he could even finish his question, and his question was, can you tell me what Jeet Kune Do is about? Bruce Lee threw a wallet at him. <laughs> Just threw a wallet up in the air, and the reporter kind of went, ah! and then grabbed this wallet in midair. And he said, that's Jeet Kune Do. And he said, what do you mean? Did you get into a praying mantis stance and then catch it in midair? Did you have to consult 10 other forms of catching the, the wallet in the air? Did you have to practice those forms? Did you have to bow to a sense? No, you just responded honestly, honestly. That was a big part of Jeet Kune Do. You had to be honest. Because can you imagine that, that instructor, to your point, that Sifu, at one point he thought, I don't think these 20 forms are going to cut it. I'm just going to spit on the guy <laughs> and I'm going to go for it because I'm pretty sure you're not going to find a spitting kata or form in any kung in any kung fu martial art no. he thought about it was honest about it and he said i'm gonna do this first then i'm gonna hit the guy that's a great right. story that's yeah. a great story we see it in wrestling a lot too like the clap like used to clap mm -hmm. and people would be so shocked by the clap like what why is this person clapping that by the time they reacted to it you already got them in, in the double leg takedown or a single leg or you know like a hip throw or something of that nature um yeah. I remember I, I did a little bit of judo when I lived in Boston. Um, I, it just didn't pan out with my resources at the time, but I, I used to always get in trouble because I, I would slip into that wrestling mentality because um, we'd be like uh, grappling or whatever, and I would drop to, to the knees and kind of do a wrestling move, and they were like, no, <laughs> you can't do that. I was like, okay, I get where you're saying, but also I'm going to do that if, if I'm actually fighting. So, and so I'm going to, I'm going to keep that in mind, but I'll also adhere to what you're trying to teach me. So. Got to have both. 
Yeah. And then, so where, like, so we've talked about the philosophical value that comes from that. And even in just talking about these concepts, you know, the honesty and, and being ready and being, being real, how does that transform into what the philosophical aspect of Jeet Kune Do is? And like, how do you hold that with you? You know, being someone who has a huge martial arts backwards, how, backwards background, um, how do you take that philosophy when you have a, a bunch of different philosophies and, and carry that with you? I think that when you're, um, you even see it in his interviews and his writings and when he talks about honesty, there's a historical context to that because uh, what he found as somebody who was practicing several styles, especially as a teenager, he found that he could not gain entry into a lot of um, these martial styles because of the bureaucracy that they had. You had to know someone, you had to go through certain forms. And by the time he found Wing Chun, he loved it so much because of its directness. But the story I read was that his classmates were so upset at him that they found a way to convince their instructor to get him out of the class because they found out that he was a quarter German. His mother was German. Like, like not, not German, but she was like half German or something right, like yeah. that. So she wasn't, he wasn't like a pure Chinese guy. So they kicked him out. And this is Bruce Lee, right? right. This is like the, the most passionate martial artist probably that ever lived. And you're going to, now you're going to take that away from him. Right. And so just to learn a martial art had its own uh, constraints. A lot of it was rooted in racism and a lot of it was rooted in nationalism right. because the question that was proposed from what I was, from what I understand at Yip Man is, well, you said do not teach foreigners. Bruce Lee is a quarter German and this is fresh from World War II. Now what are you gonna do? So they had no choice, they had to kick him out. He comes to the United States and he runs into Similar racism, and this is actually from uh, a story that was shared by uh, Daniel Nisanto in a seminar, that Bruce Lee, uh, we know, all know, uh, especially in film, it was portrayed that the Chinese sent a representative, and they said, look, you stop uh, teaching foreigners, because he was teaching, his first student right. was African-American, Jesse Glover, uh, Koreans, Filipinos, he, white people, he taught all of them. Wong Jack Man said, I, I beat you, you close the school. That the that's the Hollywood story, right. the real story from what I understand, from what was told uh, in this Danny Nosanto seminar was that Bruce Lee had to face that type of individual and that type of hostility on practically a weekly basis. So the way Danny Nosanto uh, shared it was that they'd go to the school, Bruce would be there and every week they're about to open the school, some guy would be pacing up and down waiting for him. And then he would teach, and the guy would be standing off to the side. Then Bruce would tell Dan, Dan, can you hold off onto the side? And then he would talk to him in Cantonese. And he said, before he knew it, it was a screaming match in Cantonese. And Bruce Lee would do some move, and the guy would be knocked out. The guy would wake up, shake hands, and move along. This happened to him every week. Every week. Right. So as bad as racism is, just going to work you are now having to face violence, okay? Right. He faced it again when he was in Hollywood. This, we're famous for this. What, why, why have a Chinese leading man, right? So what he ended up running into, what, what is the philosophical and ultimately practical uh, emphasis of Jeet Kune Do and why does it 
why does it uh, stay relevant to this day and age? Because what he found was that in order for his own life to progress, the main things that were holding him back were these culturally sanctioned beliefs that were limiting, that had nothing to do with this character, that had nothing to do with his work ethic, and nothing to do with his own skill. So the very idea that a, let's say, a Japanese style was somehow superior to a Chinese style, simply because it was Japanese versus it was Chinese, he found ridiculous because the evidence showed otherwise. No, it came down to the individual. If I'm in better shape than you, then I hit, then I hit you and I knock you out. And he did that a lot. He did that a lot. So one of the main things to take away from this philosophically is to, he's famous for saying, know the cause of your own ignorance. What he, and he was specific about the word ignorance right. because ignorance is limiting. And he was on the receiving end of one of the greatest ignorances that ever came upon the human species. The fact that one particular race has the right to impose themselves and take away your human rights simply because of the color of their skin or some other uh, perceived difference. Right. He got rid of that. That's number one. Anything that could not be tested, you throw out. Bruce Lee was famous for advocating for full contact sparring, full contact. And these were the days in the 1960s when it was point sparring. You had to pull your punch two inches away or your kick two inches away, because if it landed, it might've killed the guy. Right. He said, no, let it land, put on a mouthpiece and headgear, because he did not pe want people to be bought into a belief simply because it was of a particular style or because their sensei told them to do so, or, and they were awarded a black belt. And this is how we've been doing it for 2000 years when it is stress test and the evidence showed that something else was true, he absolutely advocated for that type of process for people to understand that this is how you arrive at the truth. One, remove anything that obstructs anything that can uh, limit your progress. Number two, you got to test it. Right. You have to absolutely test it. And uh, how does that translate into our pra own practices now? How does that translate into our daily lives? If you're doing something, how much of that is belief? How much of that is practical? How much of that is culturally sanctioned versus based off of a life of self-inquiry, wherein you have an entire sample size, I'm 47 years old, so I had 47 years to look back on, and be able to say, Rolando, why do you believe that? How often did you test that? How often did you test that against the beliefs of other people, against your own life experience and other people's life experiences? And I think it is far more prevalent, especially in today's climate, that we, that we accept this way of thinking because Bruce Lee was able to create a very inclusive, very inclusive martial art that allowed you to be able to look at someone and, and you go to a Jeet Kune Do school, you never hear... Yeah, you know what? That African-American guy over there, really strong guy. The Japanese guy over there, really strong throw. No, you just say, that guy over there, really strong. And that guy over there, really good, good throws. It's, it's, it's a tremendous uh, thing to experience. But it is important to remember that the application of these philosophies will lead you to a lot of self-inquiry. Right. A lot of which may not be the most convenient, but ultimately will lead you 
to a more inclusive life and a more inclusive practice that removes any culturally sanctioned beliefs. And it is stress tested based on real life. All right. So I'm, I'm going to take back that statement. I said that he probably wouldn't practice the, the groin shot and sparring because <laughs> it seems like he definitely would have practiced because you need to know what that looks like and prepare for it. So that makes yeah, sense. Yeah. 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 But, but, but it's true because I think, you know, if we, if we broaden it out, just like you were saying about stress testing and, and challenging your own suppositions and even to our last podcast where we were talking about, well, you know, if I, if I could go sit, in a monastery in the woods, I'd be fine. But that self-inquiry comes with you. And that's really where the work is. I think yeah. we're seeing that a lot on social media, but also in societal gains now where, you know, people have to start questioning, like, how do I play? And not, not whether I'm, am I, I'm not racist, so that's fine. But how, how, do, how do my beliefs possibly lead into some of this, you know, not the tip of the iceberg racism, but like what's underneath of what we usually deem like not blatant racist racism but like racism in general right and so i i think that's what we're seeing a lot with i, I know even for me is is the other day i got called out on something because I, I used uh substance abuse instead of um really paying attention to what that disorder is which which is what i believe is a trauma response right mm -hmm. but even that abuse term has so much negative connotivity to it that you know for me it's, it's no issue right like oh you you can kind of talk about it but when you start looking about how that's portrayed in different cultures or in different dynamics it's so much heavier and so i really appreciated that that ability for for someone to call me out and hold me accountable and for me to actually hear it instead of being like, well, you, you know, I, I'm a therapist. So I do this stuff all the time, but, but to be able to like, Oh no, I, I was definitely not connecting to it. And so I really enjoy learning that so that I can test these theories and when they come out in, in different ways so that I already know where that lies and what I have to work on. Yeah. I, th I think that, um, I think a lot of, uh, these things that are self-limiting, uh, whether it's it's um, it's something discriminatory, you know, whether it's racism, sexism, whatever, you, uh, people tend to subscribe to these types of beliefs because they don't want to humanize the situation. They don't want to talk to that person, right? They have these feelings about this other person. They don't understand why, and they base it off of whatever their orientation happens to be, what the skin color or what their religion happens to be. And these things tend to come about because you don't want to talk to this other person, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's the stress testing that I was talking about earlier. You know, just, I'm, I'm going to talk to you because I'm feeling something right now. So I'm going to talk to you about what that feeling is. I'm going to have that conversation. And what's interesting is that when you start talking to a person about what you're feeling, it humanizes whatever it is. When you start connecting, right? And... I know for me, I'll share this story, um, when my brother and I, uh, when we were emigrating to the United States, we have a very, very different experience of this because um, we didn't come to the United States with any expectation that somehow we were going to be uh, accepted. My dad was like, I was, I think, eight years old. My brother was six. And he said, guys, we're emigrating to the United States. You're going to learn martial arts. Your training is going to be far more intensified. Why is that, dad? Well, it's a nice place to live, but you have people who aren't so nice. They're racist. They're not going to like you simply because of the color of your skin and your background. 
And my brothers and I were young enough. We didn't understand. Okay, cool. Um, and it has, it has nothing to do with whether the location is culturally diverse because we grew up in Hawaii, which is as culturally diverse right. as it is. You have Chinese, Japanese, Hawaiians, Filipinos, all types of people, white people, black people, everywhere. It's all the spirit of aloha. Would you believe that here I am, a fifth grader, and my younger brother, a third grader, in the first week of um, going to elementary school, some kids told us to go back to our country? First week, the land of aloha, right? Yeah. You would think that thank god my dad prepared us for it because my brother and i started going home and we go so when do we start kicking the crap out of these guys <laughs> it was because we were armed right we were like we're martial artists like, so okay. eventually as you know as the school year went on as we ran into these types of things we ended up using martial arts we had that type of um ability but also the self-respect but also we had the same ability where we talked to these people afterwards say hey bro you know what you and I have to be cool. I just kicked your butt and you and I can't keep seeing each other every day, fighting each other. We have to be cool. And what's funny was later on, we did become cool. Right. We did. There's one guy I still remember. I hit him so hard with a stepping sidekick. I saw him later in high school. We were cool, man. Like, yo, bro, what's up? How are things with you? And he had a girlfriend, beautiful girlfriend. I was like, oh my God, I'm so happy for you, bro. And we never talked about that. Right. right yeah. Yeah. And so my, my, my point with this is that um, me being exposed to this, to Bruce's philosophies and his martial arts and number two, with my own training and number three, having run into my, my own experiences of racism. One, you have to be able to stand up for yourself. But once you're able to do that and you defend yourself the way you need to, you still have to humanize the situation. You still have to reach out to people and still approach them as people. I didn't come out of those experiences going, well, this race is bad, that race is bad, this race is bad, that's right, because that has nothing to do with race. If you can have racial experiences, you can, that is legitimate. But at the end of the day, when you make the effort to humanize the situation, right, you'll find that it doesn't, it actually does not exist. Racism is the sanctioned cultural belief of individuals who just don't want to humanize it, who don't want to talk to people. Because once you talk to people, your brain just goes, that's a person. That person has feelings just like you. They're right. just as afraid as you are. They want to be cared for and heard just like you. And that's what Bruce was trying to do. Please right. let's not talk about styles. Please let's not talk about which nation this art came from and how much better it is simply because of the nation it came from. Let's really talk about this. And it helped him. It helped me. It helped generations of martial artists, not only to develop as martial artists, but ultimately what his real hope was, and I believe it's helped that, it helped people become a generation of human beings. And I'll add this one more thing. It is important that for martial artists today and going forward to remember that as strong as you get, as powerful you get, especially practicing in this martial art, don't forget that the people that you learned this from today would be categorized as people of color. Right. They would be categorized as minorities. And we are enjoying this martial art right now because they had a very open and very inclusive point of view that many people are benefiting from. That's awesome, man. It's so good. I mean, like just a million things kind of came up as you were talking and, and that's a hundred percent. Like, I, I believe that so, so much that 
by denying the humanity of someone that that's how you separate because you don't want to talk to them. I remember in high school, I had the, this buddy that was a little obtuse uh, in the sense of diversity. And, and we had a friend who, who had came out and we were talking and he was on the wrestling team and the wrestling team was divided. You know, uh, we were really open. We we're like, yeah, man, like, thanks for, you know, like, I'm proud of you. And then some of the wrestlers was like, well, I don't want to wrestle him. And he, he, you know, like, what, what if he like tries to grab me? And then I remember talking to this one kid and he was like, yeah, I don't really like gay people. And I was like, based on what? Yeah. And he said, well, you know, like I haven't really talked to anyone. I was like, okay, well, you know, our friend who just came out. Yeah. Yeah. He's my, he's my good friend. Yeah. I like him. That's the one gay person you've talked to. And so you're one for one for liking a gay person. So I don't know where this, this other concept is coming from that, that you don't. And I think that really rocked him. I don't know. Like we're not as, as close as we were in high school, but like, I think it really challenged his perception because I saw him grow from that and actually challenge himself to, to be more open, to see the human in the category of, of these subdivisions that we, we as a society like to kind of arrange. I, I love that you took that approach because it's true. You got to talk. And you know what? When you talk to people, it, it, it actually gets uglier. And not because it's uglier because, uh, well, we should avoid that because it's ugly. No, because human beings are very complex. They have very different experiences. Um, than us. The racism that I've experienced is very different from the racism that we're talking about uh, nowadays, and right. especially with Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter is, is a conversation and a movement that is trying to make people address 400 years of this kind of treatment, right? 400 right. years. I'm Filipino. I'm not going to throw myself in there. I'm going to, su I support the movement because of my passion for um, so social justice and equality, right. because that's what people are here for. But I'm not going to go out over there and co-opt it for myself because my, my culture and I myself did not go through that. I was right. not subjected to any of this, but I think that that's where, that's what conversation leads you to that race ultimately is not about differences in qualities. It's actually differences in experience. People experience things differently. So when you listen to that other person, you kind of go, I didn't know you were going through that. And the hope is with further conversation, I didn't know I was contributing to that because that's right. not cool. Right. I didn't know. I'm sorry. Let me please fix this part of myself. Exactly. And that's where that, openness that honesty and the courage to speak to each other and getting rid of all of these limiting ideas and these limiting ideas are all they really limit is conversation right. we get rid of that we get to the center line we get to center line you get to the nearest target another human being okay that's easy right you will start to have that kind of positive impact not easy it's going to be complicated and what's going to complicate it is this people have different experiences of the same thing. Right. America, the United States is a very big country with a lot of people and everybody experiences America differently. And I think the more those voices come out, the more those narratives come out, the more complete this total narrative is, then we can move on to the next stage, which is, well, how can we now move together as Americans? And then ultimately how do we move together as a people for the for the greater good right
That's great, man. Yeah, all those practices that those those three things that we were talking about with Jeet Kune Do, they just they manifest in so many ways, right? And sometimes, you know, the the longest weapon and leading with the strength and and the the closest opponent that that's important to to recognize because, like you're saying, not your your role in some of the stuff is not necessarily the same as someone else's. So you direct. Yep your attention to to where you can make a difference to where you can see that okay I, I have this ability this is a strength of mine so i'm going to use it in this way at this step uh to help support the greater uh, push forward so that's awesome yeah yeah thank you so much for coming back on and this is you know again we probably have a third episode in us down the line just just so much here um but i really enjoy talking to you about one about bruce too about the philosophy of Jeet Kune Do and, and then just how it applies to, to where we're at as a nation, but also where we're at as a human race and, you know, the world, right? Yeah, yeah. I uh, thank you for having me. I, uh, thank you for uh, sharing my, letting me share my ideas with your audience. And I think that uh, with the kind of conversations that you and I have, uh, I have a greater sense of who you are, you know, very compassionate individual, and, and it, it, you're, you're not a Facebook profile that I just see, right? You know, you're, <laughs> you're a human being, right? Yeah. Uh, with your own feelings and your own thoughts. And um, thank you for um, letting me speak what's true for me, what my experiences are, and hopefully it is to the betterment of our, our or your listening audience. That's the hope, man. That that's why this all started is not for likes, not for listeners, not for fame obviously <laughs> but yeah but yeah. before to make make messages get out there and if it can if one person listens and it, it helps them then that's the goal of this podcast yes 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 plus i like talking so it gives me another avenue to to talk more i don't talk enough <laughs> in counseling but you know, i just have to add a couple more hours of talking in in my month so oh you're a great listener too you know you're a great listener there's 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 um you have both and I appreciate you for both. Appreciate you, you for being here. <laughs> <laughs> and same to you. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast. If you or someone you know would like to be on the podcast, please outreach to us at info at the Promethean Project.org. If you want to learn more about the Promethean Project or if you would like to donate to our cause, you can reach us at the Promethean Project.org. If you really do enjoy this podcast, please share with your friends. Please like our posts on social media and Instagram and on Facebook. And please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or any podcast app that you like to listen to. Again, thank you for taking a listen. And remember that the most important step is always the next one.